Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Morena, thank you. It's so nice to to be up here and it's such a joy to bring the message today. We're going to be wrapping up our message on Nehemiah, um, which is cool. And I get to bring you, I think, the pinnacle of the story today. Um, So, so far we've explored who Nehemiah was as a person who coordinated the rebuild of Jerusalem's walls. We've looked at the co-laboring of the people of Israel, the returned exiles, as they rebuilt the city wall together. We've looked at how to face the inevitable opposition during renewal. We've looked at rebuilding a community through invitation and Israel's revival in the wake of their repentance and our invitation to join in. So now at this point in the story, we see that the society of Israel has been restored to a structure that they haven't seen for generations, since about the time of Joshua. So this is a remarkable transformation. It was so much more than the rebuilding of a wall. It was the hearts of God's people who had been moved to repentance. So now, instead of idolatry, the nation has pledged obedience to God. And instead of mixing with culture and the ways of the world, the people are living to serve God. Instead of profaning the house of God, they are protecting it. Instead of living for themselves, they are making sacrifices for each other and for the Lord. So today, at the pinnacle of the story, where the returned exiles come together and they have an epic praise party to celebrate the momentous accomplishment of rebuilding the wall and to worship the God to whom they've reconciled with. So let's get into it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27, the dedication of the wall. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places in order to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers gathered together from the district around Jerusalem, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Then I, Nehemiah, had the leaders of Judah come up on the wall, and I appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. The first one proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate, with trumpets and with musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went in front of them. At the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above David's house to the water gate on the east. The second choir went to the left. I followed with half of the people on the wall as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs stood in the house of God, So did I and half of the officials with me and the priests with trumpets. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. Also on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. 
So what we see described here is pretty epic. Two choirs, musicians, priests, leaders, ascended to the top of the wall. One choir marched around in one direction, and the other went around in the other direction as they met in the middle. And as they marched on top of their newly built wall, they were singing and rejoicing in unison. This was a grand dedication. It was a grand declaration to a nation coming back to their faithful God. It's a beautiful image of homecoming and of restoration. And in fact, it's one of ancient Israel's most epic moments. Psalm 126 is a thanksgiving for a turn from captivity. And it reads, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like those who dream. It seemed so unreal. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the stream beds in the south are restored by torrents of rain. For they who sow in tears shall reap with joyful singing. You know, one of the reasons that we've done this series in Nehemiah is that it shares many parallels to this cultural moment that we, the church, find ourselves in. You know, the body of Christ, his bride, has been scattered and dislocated in the wake of the disruptions of the past few years. You, you don't need me to list all the disruptions and the grievances, the pain, the disappointments that has happened to individuals, to families, to communities, to churches since 2020. It's been a real time. And we're still feeling the effects of it, right? But God is always in the business of restoration. He is always rebuilding. He's always reconciling. He's always using broken things to make beautiful things. It is his specialty. We, the church, we're in safe hands. And in a way, we are like the captives of Israel, coming together again, learning to be a community again, learning who we are again, and not just as Coast Vineyard, but as the body of Christ. There's this beautiful homecoming that we have before us. And I feel, you know, God's placed a few things on my heart today. Um, but in particular, God wants to remind us that who we are as his children, as his beloved church, as Coast, but globally as well, we are worshippers. Worship is at the heart of our faith. You know, the restorative work that God is doing in his church in this season, it's happening as we return to him as worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. God is on the move among his church. And Jacinda mentioned this last week also. You know, there's a gentle stirring of the spirit among the church as we rebuild our communities. So let's get excited and let's get on our knees. So the three things that God's placed on my heart to share today, like the Israelites returning from captivity, is God is calling us to worship authentically, 
God is calling us to worship in unity, and he is calling us to worship unashamedly. So firstly, God's calling us to worship authentically. Let's just begin by clarifying what worship is. We often think of worship as singing and music toward the Lord. But worship is the turning of our hearts toward the Lord in humble adoration and affection. Our worship of God is in our hearts. It's an inside thing, and it bubbles out as an outward expression, such as singing. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, God will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know, worship is our returning our affection back to God. It's a heart song. It's returning our every breath back to God who breathes into us. When Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the local well, um, we read in John 4, he says to her, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus mentions nothing about singing or musical instruments here. You know, music is a powerful expression of worshipping God, but it's an overflow of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. Ephesians 5, 18 to 19 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music to the Lord from your heart. So this posture of worship begins in the quietness of our hearts and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. And that can happen all through the day and all through the night. It can happen while we're commuting or while we're going to uni, while we're walking the dog, while we're changing the baby's nappies. Worship is the meditation of our hearts, thinking on him and loving him with all our being. It's a love song in our heart and it need not have melody, nor lyrics. And yes, of course we sing and we make music, but it isn't worship if our hearts aren't postured toward the Lord. And likewise, we can work and we can care for our family or weed the garden, and it is worship if our hearts are postured toward him. The restoration of Israel that happens in Nehemiah's leadership and the revival of their faith that follows, you know, it wasn't to do with the act of reading the Torah for a whole week, as Jacinda mentioned last week. And it wasn't to do with their grand praise party of marching around the city. It was the hearts of the people that brought revival. They were genuinely hungry for God. They were repentant of their past, and they were moved to genuine repent- genuine worship. They weren't doing worship. They were worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So the epic praise party that Nehemiah organized, it was an overflow of what God was doing in their hearts. The second point, God is calling us to worship in unity. You know, unity doesn't mean that we all have to look the same or worship the same, but we all praise the same God. 
You know, the people of ancient Israel, they had been exiled for about 70 years. And no doubt it was difficult maintaining a sense of identity and nationhood while they had been scattered around in foreign lands. But when they returned, they recognized their shared faithlessness in light of God's faithfulness. And they were united in recognizing that they had all fallen short of the glory of God and they all needed a savior. They were united in their repentance. Repentance means to turn from our old ways and to turn toward God. And so in turn, when the people gathered to celebrate, they were united in their worship. They were united to the God in whom they worshiped. And likewise, we have the same shared human condition. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a saviour. Every one of us needs reconciliation with our maker. And we are many different people, the bride of Christ, a beautiful melting pot of experiences, upbringings, cultural backgrounds, perspectives and preferences, We gather in homes and in temples and schools, on mountains, on beaches and restaurants and tents and high rises and stadiums. We worship with guitars and drums, with liturgy, with lights or candles, with dancing and ribbons, with volume, with stillness, with shouting and prayers of tongues, with hollers, with laughter, with weeping. We are the bride of Christ, a colourful, vibrant flavorful, beautiful tapestry. And we all need the same God. We all repent to the same God. We worship the same God. We join our collective voices to worship God to whom we are all made in the image of. In Galatians 3, 26, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are united in Christ. We're a family. In the various expressions of Christian faith, we do things differently how we interpret some things, how we express ourselves in worship, how we serve our communities, how we've responded to the past few years. But we all worship the same God. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. We, the body of Christ, we are united in the God to whom we worship. And further to that, we are also unified in our shared purpose to worship God. You know, worshiping him is quite literally our purpose, which is a good thing because I really love it. (laughs) Um, Jesus commands us in Mark 12, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, for this is the greatest commandment. We are united in our shared purpose to glorify God. You know, everything created has a purpose. 
The chair you sit on has a purpose. The shoes on your feet have a purpose. The phone that's in your pocket has a purpose. Everything made has a purpose. And the purpose is determined by the maker, not the product. And we are created by the Lord. We don't exist for ourselves. Isaiah 43 says, The people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Our purpose as individuals and as a collective is to worship him. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. One of my favorite Christian authors was a man called A.W. Tozer. He wrote quite a lot of stuff on worship. And, and one of the things he wrote, which I love, the Christian church exists to worship God first of all. Everything else must come second or third or fourth or fifth. And he continues in another book. God made us to worship. That is why we were created. Everything has its reasons for being here. And we have this reason that we might worship the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we sinned and lost the glory and fell. And the light went out in our hearts and we stopped worshiping God and we set our affection on things below. I mean, this sounds familiar, right? This sounds like the Israelites time and time again. And it sounds like us time and time again. We have this shared humanity. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every day, we need a saviour. Toza continues, God sent his only begotten son. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and rose the third day from the dead. And he sits as the right hand of the majesty in the heavens in order that he might restore us again to worship. He redeems us that we might worship again, that we might take our place again, even on earth, with the angels in heaven and the beasts and the living creatures, that we might feel in our hearts and express in our own way that humbling, but nevertheless delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overwhelming love in the presence of that ancient mystery, that unspeakable majesty, that ancient of days. We are made to worship him. I really love him. <laughs> and while worship, I didn't mean to cry, sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Um, while, we, <laughs> while worship is to do with our hearts, it's not our outward expression, but often the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us overflows that we worship with music and singing or dancing. That's my favorite. Daniel Henderson says, we do not sing in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might sing. There is something powerful when we express a worship of the Lord by singing. I'm just going to take a moment. I just love him so much. <laughs> Sorry. I love worshiping. <laughs> When we raise our collective voices and we declare that he is the king of kings, you know, there's a reason why Nehemiah organized musicians and two massive choirs to dedicate the wall. 
because music is a powerful expression of love. It's an overflow of worship. It's a beautiful way to celebrate. And God himself sings over us. So, we're united in that we worship the same God. We're united in that we have a shared purpose to worship him. And further, authentic worship in turn unifies us. It actually brings us together and it ushers revival into the church. You know that video that Jacinda showed last week of the revival in Asbury? It was so encouraging. And if you didn't see the video, if you didn't um, hear her message last week, I really encourage you to go back to it. Um, it was this revival that happened in a small um, college campus in the States. And they just had normal, you know, chapel services a few times a week. But there was this one chapel service that just never ended. It just kept on going. It went on for two weeks. And thousands of people from around the world flocked to have a touch of God. And you know what ushered in that revival? It was the heartfelt worship of the students that day in chapel. Their obedience to stay and enjoy the presence of God, to delight in adoring Him. Worship is always at the forefront of God moving among His people. And you know, there was one comment that one of the girls made in that video, one of the students. She said, the thing which stood out most to her from that revival, more than the gifts of the Spirit and more than healing, was that people who had previously been enemies, and she used the words, hated each other, now stood together in prayer, united. I mean, isn't that amazing? We worship God together and in lifting him high, our conflicts and our disagreements are immediately exposed in the light of his presence as mere distractions from the real and the most important thing. In fact, anything that we are holding up and holding onto that is not from him must fade away as we stand in the presence of God and worship. When we worship together in authenticity and in unity, revival happens, reconciliation among each other happens, and reconciliation between ourselves and God. So God is calling us to worship from our hearts, and he's calling us to worship in unity. And this might very well bubble up in a myriad of expressions, like crying. <laughs> when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are overcome with thanksgiving, when we are enraptured by the majesty of God. God wants us to have freedom in how we express our love for him. And this brings me to my third point. God is calling us to worship him unashamedly. You know, the choirs at the wall at dedication, they were literally marching on top of their city walls, singing in every direction, north, South, east, west, boldly rejoicing in the goodness of their God. Their voices and their jubilant music could be heard far and wide. What an incredible moment of unashamed worship. They were unafraid to boldly worship their faithful God, who time and time and time again showed mercy upon their repentance. And that took great humility. They were unashamed to stand in their identity as children of God, 
a city on a hill that could not be hidden. They had come out of hiding and they had remembered who they were and whose they were and their purpose to be instruments of praise for the sake of his name before the nations of the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to people in the house. And in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. And in Hebrews, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. You know, we, the church, we are called to openly confess our affection to our King, to let our light shine, to let our love for the Lord out so that everyone will join in praise of our Heavenly Father. And if you've ever had the joy of being in love, I won't get you to put your hands up, um, you will know that you can't hold back your joy and adoration, right? You might even do things that seem a little bit foolish or a little bit undignified as you express your love. And in the same way, when we are in love with God, when we are overcome with affection and adoration, with thanksgiving and awe, we may very well express ourselves in worship in ways that might seem ridiculous or foolish or undignified. But God wants us to have freedom in his presence, to release our worship, our love to him freely and without shame and without fear, however the Spirit of God is moving us. And there's no right or wrong way in the presence of God is how you express yourself. There aren't expressions of love that are more right. You know, the overflow of worship, it may be giddy laughter and joy. It might be weeping and tears, trembling, prayers of tongues, dancing and twirling, jumping and clapping, shouting, hollers, using ribbons, knees bowed down, laying low. I love the line in that song that we've been singing, Ancient Gates, that says, no matter where or who's around, release your worship. And I kind of feel like there was a prophetic call to the Western church to be unashamed in our love for him. And it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, us Kiwis, we really value humility and in downplaying things and in being down to earth. And we're a bit grossed out by intensity and bigness or anything that seems fake or superfluous. And that cultural mindset can cross over into our faith and worship. And sometimes we criticize certain expressions of worship as inauthentic because they seem a bit over the top or manufactured. And obviously, Nehemiah's choir procession was pretty big and bold and out there, and it was also very well organized. But in reading the story prior to that, we see that the hearts of Israel had come to genuine great repentance And the great love for the Lord that the hearts of the returned exiles, they were in genuine worship. So I guess we don't know what the hearts of people, where they're at. 
and we can't judge other people's expressions of worship. Because God is seeking true worshippers and he knows our hearts. And I think maybe we hold back our expression of worship sometimes because we're fearful of what other people think. Non-believers and believers alike. And maybe we don't want to seem too much or too little. But how sad to feel like we have to edit our response to the Lord for fear of what other people think. In our heart of hearts, are we not burning for him? Then release it. What pleasure it would give the Lord with our unabashed expression of love. In our heart of hearts, can we let our love for God sweep us off our feet? Can we let ourselves fall madly in love with him? Can we let our hearts be enraptured at the wonder and the majesty of the King of Kings? Can we let our hearts be unashamed in our love for him? Let's release our love for the King of Kings. Let us sing our song back to him. Our creator who sings over us all the time. Let us bow down to our mighty God. Let us dance with our Prince of Peace. Let us pour out our thankfulness to our precious Saviour. Let us release our worship for holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Let's worship him. You know, God is on the move. He is seeking worshippers, pure love for him, authentic, unified, unashamed worshippers. And it is this worship in spirit and in truth that is restoring us as a people, as a church, as the global church. Psalm 95, this is for us as a church. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud the rock to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it and is in His hands He formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day. Be blessed.